We sometimes curse in this podcast. We also sometimes talk about things that are inappropriate for certain ages. We encourage listener discretion. Welcome back to my mom hates to read. <laughs> Welcome to my mom hates to read the podcast where okay, let me try again. <laughs> Welcome to my mom hates to read the podcast where my mom gives me a topic to research each week so that she doesn't have to read. My name is Savannah and I'm Tamara. This week, what are we talking about? Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman. <laughs> Emma Goldman. Okay, why did you choose this topic? You know, this last major election was the 100 years of women's suffrage anniversary, basically. And yeah, 2020 yeah. was 100 years. So I watched a documentary on, um, I watched a documentary on PBS about the women's suffrage and Emma Goldman's name kind of came up after in another like related story and i just i felt that she was fascinating okay that's also fitting though because you watched a pbs i got a lot of my sources from pbs did you they love her um i got sources from berkeley because they did like a emma goldstein goldstein oh my god emma goldman um did i say that before did i say emma goldstein well, I, you did say Emma Goldstein at some point, and then you corrected <laughs> yourself. But she wrote her own book. She has several books. Yeah, it didn't, but one of them was a biography. An autobiography, yeah. yeah. But um, they have something called, like, the Emma Goldman uh, Papers, and then they did a project on it. So I got a lot of um, research from those. Like, there's a lot on her. It's, like, crazy. Well, I, I'm interested to hear what what information you gathered just because she was like a real badass yeah she was so yeah let's just like fucking get into it okay so it was very interesting I yeah I read a few different articles I had a bunch of different articles and they this was like really nice research to look at because everybody Everybody had, you know, her typical lifeline, kind of like the events of her life, which thank God that she was a like writer and a speaker. And that's why we have all of this information on her, because she really kept really great records of that time, but also from her perspective, which is so awesome. And then, but they each offered a little bit of different insight into her life and her joys and like what really pushed her. And I shouldn't say joys because I think that she was really... <laughs> She might have been a little disturbed. She wasn't disturbed. I think she really saw how unjust the world was. And she was constantly fighting for people to have rights and just saw like all of the obstacles and hurdles that people had to like jump in order to just live successfully. And she, you know, she was met by all of those cross paths. I mean, we talk about intersectionality. She was a woman, she was Jewish, she was an immigrant, like all of those things. She was in a time where she was not valued because she was a woman, like all of those things just made her who she was. And I think that I'm not gonna say bitter, 
but I'm going to say that she was very, she was a realist in her perspective of the world. I can appreciate that. I, I can too. I shouldn't say that she was disturbed, but she was definitely not um, above using violent Violence. tactics yes. to get her point across. <laughs> and yeah. you, well, I have to hand it to her, especially in that time frame to yeah. be this type of person that's like, yeah, buddy, he asked for it. It's coming. <laughs> okay, that's perfect. So we'll definitely get into that because that actually took me a little bit aback because like her stance on things is one thing, you know, it's really beautiful, but then she'll be like, you know, if violence is needed, that's kind of what we're handed is violence. So sometimes you have to meet violence with violence and it is what it is. Yeah. So I thought that was just really interesting. So let's just, she was born June 27th, 1869 in Kovno, which is now known as Kaunas, Lithuania, but at the time it was part of Russia. And this is, I got this, uh, her early childhood from those Emma Goldman papers from the Berkeley Library. Um, so she grew up with her family bouncing from Jewish ghetto to Jewish ghetto so her family could find employment opportunities. And this was largely based of anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitic attitudes um, made it very difficult to find work. Um, it sounds like her mom, Tobe Benwich, Benowich. Tobe, that's a name we Tobe. should bring back. Maybe that's not Taub Benowich. I don't know. Struggled with some mental health challenges, experiencing symptoms like depression. Um, sounds like she did a bit of isolation um, and she definitely did emotional distancing from her children. So she grew up with a very emotionally distant mom. Um, I couldn't find too much information of her early life. Uh, I mean, we, we know some of her early life, but really like familial dynamics. I didn't, I wasn't able to find too much of that. Um, it sounds like her father was extremely abusive. Um, so he did a lot of like corporal punishment, what we would view as corporal punishment. So if they misbehaved, he would hit them and really did not view them well. Um, and it was probably the reason that she stopped attending school at a young age. Um, and probably played a huge part in why she is <laughs> pushing her agenda yeah. in, her, in her adult life. Yep. So probably also circumstances which required her to start working early just was like the anti-Semitism making it hard. They definitely needed the added income, so she needed to start working at an early age. Um, despite that, though, it sounds like she self-educated and was definitely an avid reader. One book specifically called What is to be Done by Nikolai Chernes... I looked it up. Okay, let's try this again. Nikolai Chernyshevsky. <laughs> um, Easy for you to say. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so... He wrote this book, actually, while he was in prison, but um, it was about a, quote, a woman who escapes the control of her family and an arranged marriage to seek economic independence. Which is a good reason why he was in prison then. 
yeah for his <laughs> oh my god yeah for so he, he lived i read an article where they just like tore him mm-hmm. apart because of his make negative quote-unquote contributions to society it was a very biased article but it was interesting to read because he was like i'm about to say it but so interestingly this author wrote this while he was in prison on false charges of inciting civil unrest um but he was a reader of karl marx which if you know Karl Marx, Karl. communism through and through. He's the creator of communism, or what people view him as the creator of communism through his philosophy. Um, and in this book, the main character runs off and marries a man who has been teaching her about socialism, um, but also discusses those concepts like sharing money and cooperative living, which we see a lot in communism. So well, wasn't Marx one of the, that brought about socialism too? That wasn't he a theorist? I can't remember if he was more because there's like two main. Are you looking it up? I was kind of looking it up because I, I was thinking Marx was more along the lines of the socialism side of it, which kind of morphed into communism. But yeah, and if I I always associate Marx with communism, so that would be good to revisit. Maybe we can do. A epi- an episode on communism because I think it's very interesting but for some reason I do associate Marx with communism. Um, he does talk about socialism but he was influenced by Marx's discussion of like the cooperative living and that was more communism. Mm-hmm. And then when I say avid reader like she fucking was there's a quote from Candace Falk founding director of the Ed- Emma Goldman Papers Research Project at Berkeley, which is one of the main sources that I got all of this information from. So, quote, then when she came to the U.S., she just read endlessly, at first in Russian, German, and Yiddish, and progressively more in English. So, this kid was forced out of school to go work and would go on to gain enough reading proficiency in to read in four different languages, which is fucking impressive. That's really impressive. Like being self-educated in not, the 1800s. Right? <laughs> I was not forced out of education and I can barely read English. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. So um, she had two older sisters, older half-sisters that were her mother's children, and then three younger brothers. So Helena and Lena or Lena Zodikow, and then Herman, Louis or Louis, and Morris, who also I think went by Yegor <laughs> Goldman. Mm-hmm. So that was those were the brothers. In 1881, when Emma was 12 or 13, um, she moved with her family to St. Petersburg. It is interesting to note that this was just months after Tsar Alexander II was assassinated in the streets of St. Petersburg by a bomb. Fun fact that he had survived five previous attempts, Jesus Christ, five previous assassination attempts. So this guy definitely couldn't take a hint. <laughs> like, why was he out of his house? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, you're just walking the streets. You got bombed. Okay. There's a hatred going on there. <laughs> um, this is important to set the stage for her life just because I think between suffering anti-Semitism along with living in a time of revolution where people were dissati- dissatisfied with the um, czarist regime and then um, it was in St. Petersburg that she saw like pro- political radicalism for the first time. 
And that's so, basic, so young. Yeah. 12 so or 13. Basically, she's like, this is how this shit's done. We're gonna Yeah. She's like, we're unsatisfied and people are fucking speaking out about it and they're trying to do something about it. And she was ignited. Like, that is where all of this stems from. Is like, she felt she could feel it and she could see it in her own personal life. And then she got to St. Petersburg and was like, oh, other people see it and they're actually trying to do something about it. And she, I think she had hope in that situation where she was like, Russia could be okay. Like, with people pushing back and a revolution coming, like, Russia might be okay. That's interesting, and it's important to hold on to for later in her life. It is a key point. So. Yes. It all ties back. Just trust me. We're going on a journey together. Okay, so according to one of my sources, she did attend school in St. Petersburg for a few months where she was able to establish a relationship with radical students and became exposed to more philosophical literature. So I think they did a good job at like sharing literature with each other. And that same thing happened when she did later go to the US is that people were like, you know, in order to be good at what you're doing, you need to read what people are saying because Mm -hmm. that's how we share ideas. But here is where I think her father put an end to her formal education. She would go on to write about her father telling her, quote, all a Jewish daughter needs to know is how to prepare gefoltefish, gefoltefish, God, okay. What is that? All a Jewish daughter needs to know is how to prepare gefoltefish. It's, I don't know. It's a traditional Jewish. Yiddish or Jewish, Jewish Orthodox oh. Jewish dish. Um, anyways, all a Jew- Jewish daughter needs to know is how to prepare gefilte fish, gefilte fish. God, gefilte, yeah, gefilte, gefilte fish. If you want to watch a really good, no, 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 <laughs> it's a I've restarted this. I know, but I've restarted this quote three times. I know. Okay. Watch an Orthodox, unorthodox on Netflix. Ooh, it is so good. Okay. Okay, so cut noodles fine and give the man plenty of children. Which, if you think about that last part, is actually, like, such a creepy thing to say to your daughter. I know that a lot of people have grown up with this mindset of, like, oh, you need to have babies and this babies are so important. But having someone talk about your own reproduction seems so fucking personal. Personal. And it's just, like... But it still goes on. Yeah, I've had people fucking ask me, like, about when I'm having children and stuff. And it's, like, okay, so, first of all, you're kind of asking me if I'm actively having unprotected sex with my partner, <laughs> first of all. Second of yeah, all, my... That. All I can think about when I think of, like... I think about insemination. I think about then growing the child and pushing it out of my vagina. That's all like my personal stuff and I don't need you to know about it. So next time you go to ask somebody about that, just remember that they may be thinking about like their vagina as soon as you say that and it's personal. Well, I think having children in general is personal. I know that that's a whole physical side of it, but you know, I I just feel like we don't need to be in the space where we have to have children. don't have to have children it's everybody's decision and also it's none of your business and if somebody wants to share that with you that's fine be open to that but you don't need to actively even if you think it's your right it's not your right it'd be like coming up to and asking me like am i on a regular menstrual cycle like is my menstrual cycle (laughs) fucked up yeah do i need to tell you about that no yeah and also what if i can't have children that is such an awkward conversation well also i've actually been present with somebody who had um recently been married and having a conversation with someone who was older and 
was married for many years, but had chose not to have children and, you know, asking, she was the older person who chose not to have children was asking the younger woman who had just gotten married about having children, but then also followed it up with her own opinion on not having children because she had. So yeah, pushing your, again, pushing your own values onto somebody, no matter which way you sway, it's really uncomfortable. That's just not, I think that that's, yeah, that's a really intimate question to be asking somebody casually. Well, and there's just no reason to explain to somebody the choices that you made in life, especially when they're, you know, if that's a, a, a private conversation you want to have with a friend or family member, like why you chose the degree you chose to get. I cannot financially support a child right now. Let's be honest. Okay. Oh, sidetrack. So it sounds like basically, and I wrote that in and I knew that we would go off on a tangent. So we're good. Okay. So it sounds like basically her father pulled her out of school to start working at a glove factory. And then her father tried to marry her off. And she was like, yeah, fuck that. By this point, both of her older sisters, I think either one of her sisters or both had moved, but it kind of sounds like she traveled with one of her sisters. So one of her sisters had moved to New York, the state, and she decided like she was going to join Helen and going to meet their other sister in New York. So in 1885, they both went to Rochester, 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 New York, Rochester. Rochester. Wow. Rochester, New York. I'm from the United States. (laughs) Rochester. Yeah. Um, she was only 16 at this point. So she must have worn her father down because he gave her permission to go. So she went at 16 to fucking New York because she was like, let's go. I I know of this case where a woman traded her daughter for a car. You hear about, okay, I'm sorry to <laughs> say this, but a lot ago. of, no, listen, a lot of, a lot of young girls that get sold into sexual slavery today, modern day, are in that situation because their parents were financially restricted in some way and sold their child, a lot of cases like a stepchild, into sex slavery the sex trade, the sex human trafficking. Trade, human trafficking. I, and I don't. Because they were strapped for money and they traded that human for money. Which is horrible. That happens today. I, I wasn't laughing. I, I kind of laughed. The, the thing was, is that in this particular situation, the girl wanted to marry this older man and the mom was like, okay, fine, but give me a car. So a dowry. She basically negotiated a dowry. Which is not okay. It's it's definitely not okay. (laughs) It's a lot different than like literally selling your child and and it's sad that it's fucked up and she clearly got in trouble, like if it's new. Well, yeah, I I don't know. It was in the context of some other things that were going on. But yeah, anyway, but no, I mean so I don't please don't take it wrong that I was giggling about that. Yeah. It was just like, I, I just can't imagine like saying, imagine. oh, yeah. I'm like, hey, Lippy. <laughs> yes, you may marry my daughter, but I would like a new iPod. Yeah, <laughs> iPod. I just transported us back like 10 years. Yeah, there you go. Because I would like, yeah, a dated iPod for <laughs> Savannah. <laughs> 
apparently that's what she's worth. I'm glad that you're like, you're like a vintage iPod with the rotator, like where you can actually feel it rotate because I really like that. Okay. Okay. Anyways, so, uh, man, so he had to have given her permission to go in one of the resources I read. It was like, or one of the sources I used, it was like, um, with a lot of drama, which like is a common theme in what they talk about because I, she really liked the theater. So I think that maybe she was very theatrical and I mean, it turns up later, like, she was very charismatic, so it definitely could be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, she starts working in Rochester at, like, a textiles factory, and then in 1886, a couple of important things happen. So, A, she gets married to some dude she works with, and what I can tell is that he he was Jewish and then was, like, of some sort of, like, aristocratic, part of a, an aristocratic family. And so she was like, okay, this will get everybody off my back. I'm just going to marry this motherfucker. And then the other thing that happened was the Haymarket riot, which this definitely deserves its own episode because I think it's so interesting. And it definitely sculpted her life and was a huge moment in her life. And it comes back in the end, so... The Haymarket Riot, I'll just touch on it briefly. Um, So working conditions, especially in factories, were super shitty, as we know. Um, So this is like still the late 1800s. So in the 80s, 1880s, a movement of industrial workers was developing. um, And in Chicago's Haymarket Square, they were holding a labor protest on May 4th, 1886. May the fourth be with you. May the fourth be with you. So it was not with them because the day before the police had fucking killed and wounded some workers that were on a strike, like a labor strike. Wow. And the radicals of this movement were super pissed. Um, This is important to Emma Goldman because this protest in response to police brutality was organized by anarchists. I'm not sure that they said like that they were outwardly spoken that they were anarchists but they were later labeled as anarchists but it plays into like anarchy is the overall theme of emma goldman's life so police arrived at the square um and some fucking guy threw a goddamn bomb at the police then there was open firing probably definitely the cops and seven police and one civilian so i mean I think that the cops initiated the firing, but I think they responded with weapons as well. So, like, some of the protesters did have weapons. And so, seven police died, one civilian died, and a bunch of people were injured during this violent kerfuffle. That's what I wrote. Okay, the big thing here is a lot of the organizers were foreign-born, and so just xenophobia came in like a hellhound. Or something really fast and awful. Diarrhea, maybe. You know. <laughs> what? <laughs> I knew you weren't paying attention. What you, no, so I that's what I wrote. Attention. So xenophobia came in and I wrote like a hellhound, but I wanted it to be more descriptive. More like diarrhea. Oh. Like xenophobia was spreading like diarrhea. I mean okay. just shit everywhere, just across the communities. Like they were just diarrheaing xenophobia everywhere. So eight men were charged for inciting the chaos and socially charged as being radicals and anarchists. So seven were charged to death, like 
What? They were, yeah. So they were sentenced like they to put death. To people to death for that? Yep. So seven were sentenced to death and one was sentenced to 15 years in prison. So four were hanged of those seven that were sentenced to death. Four were hanged. One died by suicide the night before the execution. Two were commuted to life in prison. And then half of the public was like, oh, I'm not sure, A, that they can really be guilty of this. And B, how can we be sure that it was these eight men that organized this shit to begin with? Well, so besides they were... that, it's like, that's something you would put someone to death for? So xenophobia played a huge role in it. And then they really needed, so like half of the population kind of viewed them as martyrs. And then the other half was like that they are the representatives of why this violence happened. So like they mm. needed to take some people down. Like we see all the time like we want to keep in, you in cases line. like, yes. So we need some, we need to hold somebody accountable. We need to make a an yeah. example out of somebody so it might as well be these fucking foreign-born people that incited this violence well i i am happy to say it i don't think we actually execute people unless they have killed other people like there's no death sentence for something outside of like killing somebody is there that's, that's a what great I'm talking question about. yeah i mean yeah but it, still it, there and setting people. aside the wrongly accused or innocent people who are well technically cops died i mean cops died they died so they have they to weren't find the ones that threw the bomb they and they never identified that person that actually mm -hmm. threw the bomb so they right. just fucking had nothing to go on and so it was well, these eight people that they targeted i think it would be interesting to do another episode on police during that time because yeah because like them, irish yeah right so many there, things were going on there were there was a there was a huge social issue when it came to um that position as well law enforcement position yeah well. it's so deeply embedded in our system that it's like this when people argue like oh this this isn't a real problem it's been a problem for as long as we've had police like there's always been biases there's always been social systemic biases and we are recognizing well, it. and that was kind of a forced position for some migrants specifically the irish migrants and i i know a lot i know it had a lot to do with Irish migrants taking those positions, but it wasn't a, a real like sought out position to have in law enforcement, mm -hmm. but to be in law enforcement at that time. Okay. So this fucking shitty thing happened, which obviously since we went on a tangent, we can both agree that it was not just, and it was shitty. So Emma Goldman was like, well, fuck this place. It's not much better than the shit storm I left where like the revolution was happening, but she was so oppressed that she couldn't really participate in it. She was like, the United States was not much better. So regarding Chicago's Haymarket Square, Emma said that America, quote, had proved most disappointing, end oh. quote. Um, but this really did heavily impact her. So she divorced her husband because she was unhappy. And I read somewhere that he did not intellectually stimulate her. Um, and in 1889, Which is amazing. totally fair. <laughs> 
<laughs> that day and age to get a divorce just because she's like you know what i'm not happy i'm done so well yeah, good for her yeah so i i'm kind of question whether she would have been happy with any man but anyway there's Which, more discussion yeah interesting but so in 1889 she took her shit and caught a train to new york city where she could quote do what i like live as i like without asking anyone's advice without feeling the need of it end quote so Which i'm enjoying that part of life right now yeah right it's so good to be independent okay so this is where she really got into the anarchist movement but for the sake of philosophy and before we hear about all of the radical shit i want to touch on anarchy as a concept so because there's a whole show on it is there Sons of Anarchy. Oh my god, okay. Not the same. <laughs> if that's your basis, just get rid of that. So, um, Greek anarchos, meaning without authority, is a philosophical, 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 philosophical concept. This is supposed to be concept. Concept that has been um, around for a really long time, always kind of used in a way that is pejorative, but is set in a few basic principles. So people always used it negatively, but it's set in like pretty understandable principles and I think they're very applicable today. So one, that power corrupts. Two, that property is incompatible with freedom. Three, that authority and property are between them the begetters of crime. So like authority and property are like where crime derives from. And then four, that only in a society without rulers where work and its products are shared can people be free and happy, um, acting not according to laws, but by their consciousness. Consciences. They, yes, they're awake, but they're conscientious. <laughs> conscience. Consci conscience. Jesus Christ. Pinocchio. Pinocchio. <laughs> Okay, so I got no strings to hold me down. <laughs> no, we can't get through an episode without mom singing. She has to sing. Okay, some of the earliest anarchist activism is found in the 1640s, mom, the 1640s. Um, where essentially communal living and viewing authority as a way that causes humans to not use their own reason or logic, kind of this idea that people blindly subscribe to these societal rules and respond to situations with what they have been conditioned to believe is true rather than use their own logic or like reasoning, which we talk about, like even in my studies, public administration, we talk about those those philosophies where like you set certain um, assumptions when you're viewing humans and that's sort of how you act. So like if you're assuming that people can't reason for their for themselves, then you believe that government and like an overarching um, ruling body is essential to human beings. But if you believe that people can reason on their own and that they have the power to like contribute to society in an effective way because they they are reasonable humans then you're going to view them and act according to that standpoint so it's philosophy um okay so it does remind me of communism in the way that some early anarchists have envisioned what anarchist communities would look like so small 
autonomous communities with democratic political procedures being used as little as possible, but like not completely eradicated of those procedures because um, you still need some sort of way of structure. like, a, yeah, some sort of structure, um, but no overarching authority, obviously just agreements amongst citizens. So, and then because private... <laughs> Because private property is viewed as, like, a root of evil, there would be loose economic systems where you give and take according to needs. Um, In these societies, people would live pretty simply. So it wouldn't work in an established society unless they were completely bought into the idea of, like, trashing everything they currently have established and relearning everything we know to test this, like, shit out. So it would just be a huge undertaking. And most people hate change, so it's just, it's... It's a dream. Um, it would really work only in a like isolated community now nowadays if you wanted to try to practice anarchy. Um, so that's your anarchy 101. Which is completely interesting uh, just because when you think of, I well, when I hear the word anarchy, I think of chaos. Yeah. But it sounds like it's actually... Well, that's the systemic, like, that's the system that you're in trying to tell you, like, this is bad because it would be getting rid of the system that is holding you into place. So the system that it's value, that is valuing itself would not tell you that anarchy is good because it would essentially take away their governing power. It would take away their power. So they have to tell you it's bad. So anytime you hear the word anarchy, you think it's bad because you've been conditioned to think is bad. (laughs) Emma aligned with anarchy because she believed that human nature was inherently good and that people would naturally organize communities around common interests. And then because of her life experiences, she valued challenging injustices and believed that women needed to emancipate from men. She became a champion of women's rights because of this stance. This is her definition of anarchism. So, quote, the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government rest on violence and are therefore wrong and harmful as well as unnecessary, end quote. And because of her early reading about socialism and communism, she did tend to align with the idea that private property contributes to a lot of bad things in the human experience and that humans could organize themselves around common interests to slowly live better social lives. Which I think we see that a lot with um, natives in a lot of native communities yeah Yeah. native communities throughout throughout the history throughout the world throughout the world yeah not just like local but yeah i mean you see it all the time especially in like sub-saharan um desert areas those communities are really um dependent on communal farming because that is like there are only certain lands that you can really manage to grow crops from to feed livestock so you're really dependent on systems where like livestock are here during this season and then like this is where I learned about um, minimum tillage farming is so basically you leave the crops there and that fertilizes soil and then the animals are part of it and they're helping like till the soil and then when you're ready to grow the crops like the soil is ready Hmm. so it's like very dependent on those sort of shared systems so it's it's 
it happens everywhere. So it's not a completely crazy idea. Well, right. It's been going on for probably all of humanity, like since our existence. Yeah. So she became active in New York's anarchist community, forming two very important relationships. One with Johan Most, but maybe Johan Most, and to her partner. Um, Johan Most was like a huge anarchist um, in New York. And then to her partner, Alexander Berkman, also from Russia. He was Jewish as well. So with Alexander, they were in love, but she also described it as, quote, um, or as making, quote, a pact to dedicate themselves to the cause in some supreme deed to die together if necessary, or to continue to live and work for the ideal for which one of them might have to give his life, end quote. So they, I think they really were in love. They spent their, basically their entire lives together. But I think that there was a huge portion of their relationship that was united in this cause for betterment through anarchy, which is very interesting. So, okay, here we go. Shit gets crazy, <laughs> as as it tends to do. Um, so in 1892, Alexander and Emma were really troubled by how Pennsylvania steelworkers were being treated. They had demanded better wages and were basically prevented in really violent ways from returning to work for protesting wages. They decided, they as in Alexander and Emma, decided that they needed to do something to show the workers that they could overthrow the oppressive system and create a more just society. And that something was to, quote, assassinate Henry Clay Frick, the Carnegie steel manager responsible for the bloodshed, end quote. So they got a gun, went to Pennsylvania, and shot but did not kill Frick, which you've got to live up to it. You're such a frick. (laughs) And then the whole nation was like, oh my god, anarchists are fucking crazy, dude. (laughs) What the fuck? So it had the complete opposite effect. So Goldman was not indicted, but Alexander Berkman was sentenced to 21 years in prison. So he's gone. So she had another run-in with the law in 1901, just a couple years later, when Leon Zakolga's Zolgaz assassinated President William McKinley and claimed he was like acting on behalf of Emma. So she was arrested, didn't have enough evidence to charge her, but knowing what we know about our society, she became like the poster child for violent anarchists. Mm. So everybody was like, that's that's it. <laughs> she is the anarchist that we should be afraid of. Um, she definitely preferred educational means of spreading her values. So We'll get into violence a little bit, but she definitely was a public speaker. So she was, she went around and like, I read something that she would like stand on corners and, and start talking about all of the things that she was like passionate about, but like she was viewed as very antagonistic, but she was also a lecturer where people would come to hear her talk because she was a powerful speaker. So. Well, it sounds a little bit like she is current charismatic. Yes, I say that. Hold on. (laughs) She did express in her writings over time that sometimes violence was an effective tool and at times inevitable, mainly because she viewed governments as practicing violence against their citizens. So you have to meet violence with violence. Um, In 1906, she launched the Mother Earth magazine, quote, which featured articles on politics, anarchism, free love, birth control, and feminist ideologies. 
Hold up. 1906? 1906. Wow. Listen to this, though. But she didn't particularly take to the suffrage suffrage movement, so, like, the suffragettes, um, because she believed it was engaged, because, like, that movement was engaging in politics and therefore the established system and that their goals were, like, a bit short-sighted. So she was really in conflict with the mainstream movement. Um, I don't think that they liked her very much. (laughs) (laughs) Because she was like, you need to be doing better. And also you're just, like, playing into their system. So how effective are you really going to be? And if if your goals of, like, getting the right to vote works, if it works, like, then what? How, How does that make you equal? Mm-hmm. so anyways there's a lot of argument behind that but that was her view um she also trained as a nurse and midwife um because of her wanting to be a champion of women she needed to know how that worked and also she was like a huge advocate for reproductive rights so she was frequently arrested for promoting birth control and breaking other decency laws and speaking out about sexual and reproductive freedom hmm. so um, she also viewed marriage as oppressive and that people will only know if they really love each other, um, if they live together. I don't know what I was writing there. If they live together and that if they stop loving each other, they shouldn't be forced to stay with each other. So she was like, she basically said that Americans should get rid of marriage because it's, hmm. you know, right. like our, we shouldn't be dependent on marriage to get like the same rights and whatever which we totally are it's such a legal we are so dependent on it yeah it's so stupid okay she was largely viewed as un-american and eventually mother earth was banned by the government she also earned the title red emma because obviously she's a threat so let's make her sounds like an angry rational woman mm-hmm. red emma over a 10-year span, she toured and gave lectures in German, Yiddish, and English, speaking about anarchism, politics, drama. She was a huge theater fan and advocate, um, birth control, economic freedom for women, radical education, and anti-militarism. During this time, she also was writing like crazy, from correspondence to essays to publications in Mother Earth, and she was viewed as very charismatic with the biting wit. No, yes, with a biting wit, (laughs) and attracted all sorts of audiences, so immigrants, laborers, middle-class men and women, intellectuals, and even farmers. She was really dedicated to labor rights. She said, quote, if the production of any commodity necessitates the sacrifice of human life, society should do without that commodity, but it cannot do without that life. She was very moved by her religious upbringing and the Jewish oppression she watched her people struggle through, but she viewed religion as inherently repressive, viewing anarchy to include, quote, the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, end quote. She reminds me of myself, honestly, in that she rejected Judaism as a religion, but still participated in Jewish holidays. So like for me, we were raised Catholic and I don't ascribe to any religion, but I see their value and what the honor like and want to honor their history and how religion impacts humanity and like individual humans like it's it's still important Mm -hmm. and it's still valuable but i don't ascribe to any one religion (laughs) okay so here comes alexander again like fresh out of prison in 1917 what was he like 15 years later i think it was less he was sentenced to 21 years but I, it must have been less because I don't, that time doesn't really add up. 
in my head. No, I don't, I don't think he served the full 21 years. Um, so fresh out of prison in 1917 and they get arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for quote conspiracy against the draft end quote because she helped the no conscriptus league attract followers and participate in anti-war protests and meetings so during world war i think world war one which later we saw i mean we saw this happen later with lg LJ, LB, LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ in like the Vietnam War. So oh, okay. like this is a common thing that we see, but this, so this was World War One. Yeah, that timeline makes sense. So she worked with this league to attract followers and they would have protests, but they would also have meetings to plan the protests. And so they like narrowed in on on Emma Goldman and Alexander. You're a woman. You can help us do this. Yes. Well, I think she was very outspoken anarchist. So she had a reputation by this point. Um, So this is a quote from Emma Goldman about prison because she did spend two years in prison. So year after year, the gates of prison hells returned to the world's and emaciated, deformed, willless, shipwrecked crew of humanity with the cane mark on their foreheads their hopes crushed all their natural inclinations thwarted with nothing but hunger and inhumanity to greet them these victims soon sink back into crime as the only possibility of existence it is not at all an unusual thing to find men and women who have spent half their lives nay almost their entire existence in prison which we still see today yeah i think it's a very applicable quote in 1919 she was released and then arrested again like less than two months but basically like a month later because she was essentially an enemy of the state her and alexander were two of 200 people that were then exiled back to the soviet union in december 1919 so i'm pretty sure she got released in like november mm-hmm. and then was exiled in December. Um, So the remaining 21 years of her life, she was still an activist and an advocate. She lived all over Russia, Sweden, Germany, France, England, and I think she would ultimately end up in Canada. So she lived all over, but she ends up in Canada. Um, She hated Russian authoritarianism specifically because of... So, okay, let's put into context... She is living in the United States, is an activist, is an anarchist. She is viewed as like a enemy of the state. She gets exiled back to Russia, which we'll get into a second, but like Russia was what started this all for her. Mm-hmm. So, but she went back and things were bad in Russia. So she hated Russian authoritarianism, specifically because of the Bolshevik regime. She wrote um, her books, uh, one called My My Disillusionment in Russia, which came out in, or which was published in 1923. And then My Further Disillusionment in Russia, which came out the following (laughs) year in 1924, which I just thought was lovely. After two years, her and Berkman, so Alexander, decided to leave Russia, writing, quote, All my life, I fed on the wonderful spirit of Russia. Then to have found it prostrate. Do you know what prostrate re- means? I had to look it up. 
Go ahead and spring it. So it looks like it's like laying completely flat face down. Mm. (laughs) So then to have found it prostrate, kicked into the gutter, attacked on all sides, enduring tortures Dante's Inferno did not contain, above all, stabbed in the heart by its own friends, and then not to be able to help even a little bit. So she was just like she just felt like she couldn't do anything and just had to leave because it was kind of when she was in the united states it it was kind of, i think she kind of saw the united states as a place where she would be able to have a voice and you know change towards a better society whereas i don't feel like she felt like she had any voice or any ability to do that in the i think it's really Russia. twofold right so she saw the revolution that was happening in Russia and and felt excited about it, but as a woman knew that she had no rights and saw that like some sort of prosperity in the United States that women's rights were coming along faster and that she may be able to do more in the United States. And I mean, she really did a lot. And then to come back to Russia, this like what ignited her hope, but then to come back to Russia and see that they had fallen right back into a different authoritative regime, like rather than the czars, it was now a like different oppressive regime that was, they were still on the brink of social uprising and she still couldn't do anything because she was immediately an enemy because she was outspoken and had progressed far further than probably most women had at that time in Russia. So throughout the 1920s and 30s, she would continue to write about Russia in attempts to expose the Bolshevik regime for their shittiness. (laughs) She moved to London and didn't really feel like she belonged. So she married an elderly coal miner from Wales. His name was James Colton, so that she could get British citizenship and travel elsewhere. So um, still, I think she was still with Alexander, like, as far as like her fight to do better goes and like their passion together. But she married this man. um, Even though she didn't view marriage positively, she knew that like she needed to do that in order to be able to freely travel. So in 1934, she was allowed to come back to the United States on a brief speaking tour for 90 days. By the way, this made me cry when I was reading it. Friends reported that her deportation and exile were very hard on Emma, saying that she would sit at the Canadian border and look longingly across to the U.S., tears streaming down her face. Like she clearly still had a strong passion for the United States. Alexander died in 1936 in Nice, France. At the time, Emma was living in Saint-Tropez, France, where she wrote her autobiography, Living My Life, which was published in 1931. The summer of 1936, Emma went to Spain to advocate for workers and anarchism under fascist rule, where fascist extreme right military coup attempted to turn where a... Where am, no, where a fascist extreme right military coup attempt turned into a civil war. So I think some anarchist societies were kind of developing as they were trying to like find their place in the world and like 
reestablish what Italy was and like uh, I don't know if this was after World War One, but because of that and then an extreme right military who came in and was trying to like wreck all of that progress and it turned into a civil war in Spain which I didn't know anything about. She moved back to London for a few years where she became a representative of the National Confederation of Labor and the Anarchist Federation of Iberia, directing the English Language Press Service and Propaganda Bureau for the Spanish Anarchists. Wow, those are a lot of words. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm taking a sip. We're nearing the end, so... (laughs) Wow! Wow! Well, no, I was just thinking, you know, it's it's interesting when we start talking about a lot of this, like, history and, you know, like, who chooses what we teach in schools as far as what our history is and how much of what is decided as far as what should be taught, is it based on how are we going to keep people doing what we need them to do versus have their own thoughts yeah to continue the system and and she was a huge advocate for they call it radical education but it's education that really tells you the truth um and that reminds me i i love this i got some of my information just a little bit of it but it was really about like the discovery of the site and i'm really happy that it popped up it's called um americans who tell the truth.org And it is based off of an artist who paints portraits of people that are dedicated to, um, like, telling the truth about about their experiences and hoping that it leads to more engaged citizenship. And it's a really beautiful site. It's very interesting. Um, I definitely encourage you to go check it out it's it's very lovely and it's such a nice i mean there's so many people on there and he's really painting a representation of people that have fought for social justice amongst other things that's very cool so um in 1939, she moved to Canada, where she continued to work to support Spanish refugees to get them asylum and help prevent foreign-born radicals from being deported back to dangerous countries. In February 1940, Emma suffered a stroke, which left her unable to speak. She later died in May. She was buried in Chicago's Waldheim Cemetery near the graves of the Haymarket Martyrs. Hmm. So it all circles back. That was something that really impacted her life. And she was allowed by the American government, or her body was allowed by the American government, to come back to the United States and be buried. Emma Goldman, so I have a quote, I have a couple of quotes for kind of how I'm going to end. So Emma Goldman, Anarchism and Other Essays, Um, This is a quote about anarchism, what it really stands for. So, freedom, expansion, opportunity, and above all, peace and repose alone can teach us the real dominant factors of human nature and all its wonderful possibilities. Anarchism, then, really stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, the liberation of the human body from the dominion of property, liberation from the shackles and restraint of government. Anarchism stands for a social order based on the free grouping of individuals for the purpose of producing real social wealth, an order that will guarantee to every human being free access to the earth 
and full enjoyment of the necessities of life according to individual desires, tastes, and inclinations. This is not a wild fancy or an aberration of the mind. It is the conclusion arrived at by hosts of intellectual men and women the world over, a conclusion resulting from the close and studious observation of the tendencies of modern society, individual liberty and economic equality, the twin forces for the birth of what is fine and true in man. Um, and then I just wanted to leave off with this last quote. The history of progress is written in the blood of men and women who have dared to espouse an unpopular cause, as for instance, the black man's right to his body or a woman's right to her soul. Powerful. Yeah. Yes. So that is Emma Goldman. Her experiences shaped like essentially her ability to be an advocate and to speak out. And even though it wasn't shared with the popular movements of the time, like she was still helping people, you know. I did have her book on my list of things to buy on Amazon yes. for your a present for you. Yeah, um, I would absolutely read that. Well, I, I mean, you look at the time frame that she lived in and Jesus, how yeah. relevant it is today. Uh, but I learned something. I, I don't know that I, I realized anarchy was it had an actual meaning or purpose. I mean, obviously a meaning. Um, but again, as we t discussed earlier, kind of saw it more as as chaotic versus an actual. Um, Community, yeah. Community living. We are part of a society. We are part of a community. And because we subscribe to those like values that our society has created, we are more apt to just take information without questioning it, but by by looking at it from a philosophical or a theoretical standpoint, we can we can begin to question it. So when you're thinking about things like anarchy and communism, we're very apt to be like, oh, that's bad. Like everything that I've heard is bad about it because that's what our society has ascribed like the meaning to it. But if we just take a step back and look at the philosophical like proponents of these ideals or concepts, we can see what their actual purpose was and how they were envisioned. And rather than just applying them to what we know and what is currently happening, we can see them for like the concepts that they are. And they are very beautiful. In, in theory, they would be very beautiful societies if it could work like that. Trying to adapt them to our societies now leads to communist issues that we have historically seen because it's very hard to reteach an entire population like it's just so hard to apply those but if you look at them for what they're worth and question them at at their concept it is it's a better way of understanding those well, I, I just don't think that there's anything wrong with exploring the other theories that are out there or even understanding or knowing the theories that are out there. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean that you have to turn our entire society upside down 
and create something new or go to such an extremism as communism. But there's nothing wrong with just knowing what those theories are and what they stand for. And, and seeing why that they were even developed because it right. has a historical context and then seeing that people even in our modern society have studied those and found ways to apply them to our society. So we want to say that it's bad or not good, but we have socialist aspects of our society that are very beneficial to our communities because we are providing services and we are providing aid and we are attempting to make things more equal because we have adopted those those pieces of philosophy that we have found value in and saw that there is applicability in them. And, and if you do explore those things and you do start to see those pieces that are brought together, um, well, just to give you an example, my degree is in sociology and I had a professor that at the time, and I'm dating myself. This was early '90s. That said that um, our the that America was actually the closest ideal to a socialistic system. Yeah. So you really do need to look and um, whether you agree with that statement or not, but you really need to look at all of those different theories and ideas around that. Um, I think the idea of communism sounds wonderful. It sounds very beautiful and there are places, there are communities in, like I know Denmark has a community where they practice communal living um, and that is basically structured around single parents who are trying to create a community where they can do like shared parental like right um what is it called like a community raising children so they all they have a garden um, they all kind of pool their money together, like they have jobs, but they all kind of pool their money together to pay for rent, to maintain the property. They take turns cooking on different nights and they all eat dinner together. And it is really a community that is established in this, like one common goal of like, we're single parents and we couldn't do this in our society as it is now. And we needed to create a community that was applicable to our needs and met our needs and and that works and that is an example of communism and when you think of anarchy and communism it is probably more applicable to smaller communities and that means rather than having huge nation states which we know now but that that is the complexity of it is it's very it would be very hard to apply now right because we're so entrenched in what we're doing but i would just like people to like read the background on it and why these theories and then that later became practices are in place. I'm not saying that you should buy into communism or socialism or, or whatnot. I'm just saying if you just look into the theory behind it and, and what those theorists were trying to accomplish, then maybe it won't seem so evil to you. And there is value in taking care of each other. And half of our population is really concerned with that. And then the other half of the population is really concerned with independence and autonomy because that is what has been drilled into our brains since the conception of specifically the United States is like our autonomy and our sovereignty. But when it comes down to it, we are only successful. We are 
as successful as our weakest person. So if we are trying to help each other, that ultimately makes us better. And that is still a beautiful thing and it is still applicable. And the majority of those philosophies resign on that, on that ideal that we well, should be taking care of each other. And that's a, that's a statement that I've, I've heard a lot in the last year from some different circles that I'm involved in where you're talking about if you can reach the most um, vulnerable person, when you can reach that the most marginalized person, then everyone else succeeds. Yeah. And it's just an amazing statement. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that that thought process came from, whether that theory came from, um, but it is it is amazing because if you can reach them, then that means everybody else is going to benefit in that process. With the structure as it is, like that is how it is. And so if you're able to reach the person that is lower on the quote unquote unquote, totem pole, like you are effectively impacting everybody else on that totem pole. And so like with our structure, that is how it is. You Mm -hmm. and that is what equity is, is knowing that lifting up the lowest person has its advantages and benefits to the rest of the community. Don't you feel like there's this overriding sense of like, but if they get that, then then I don't get this. Right. Yes. You have no idea. I'm so excited. to. (laughs) Well, we could get into it later, but it's more and more prevalent and evident as I continue down like my social justice journey of how those crabs in the pot, like they are willing to take down everybody else so that they can get out first. They can be the ones that get the benefit, that get the reward, and they don't want. Is that what the Squid else. Game or whatever is all about? I don't know. We should watch it. Okay. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Mother, Tamara, daughter. Daughter, I love you. I love you too. I think you're fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for I, giving me this. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for giving me this research topic. It was so good. To Emma. And I just realized why you wanted those lights on. Why? So that went flicker. Because the ghosts. (laughs) Bye.